Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Three weeks ago, three weeks ago, we started looking at 1 Thessalonians. And I knew then, and I told you I knew then, that I wasn't sure I wanted to start a new book because we had a guest speaker the next week, which was the McClellans. But that introductory message, which actually turned out to be the whole first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, actually I felt, uh, I felt it was important to go ahead and preach that message because it laid some groundwork that I felt would help us to receive from and appreciate the McClellans ministry. All right, and we can always go back and do a little review, which we will do a, a quick review this morning. Uh, and I figured, you know, one week break. But then I was compelled last week to address some other things, so we didn't get back into First Thessalonians. And maybe I say this too often, and I know it might sound self-serving. It's not the way I mean it, but please, please, please get last week's message and listen to it if you weren't here. And a lot of people weren't. I mean, I had like 50 regulars gone. I know it was a big travel weekend because of the school schedule last week. But if you missed last Sunday, I really kind of need you to listen to that because I want to preach it again. I had to say some, uh, some difficult things. Uh, some toes got stepped on. But I really, I want to thank you, especially the people who came up to me afterwards to say, we need our toes stepped on from time to time thanked me specifically for that message. And it wasn't all a toe-stomping message. There were some things I had to say about the, uh, at the beginning that you do need to hear if you didn't hear them. Uh, and then the rest of it was good, encouraging gospel message, okay? Anyway, all that to say, we are still looking at First Thessalonians. We haven't forgotten. We're going to get back into that today. Uh, like I said, we went all the way through, and this is a short message today, so... Uh, Pay attention. Uh, where am I? Where is Thessalonians? New Testament, right? Uh, page uh, 1,826 in my Bible, okay? Now, we went all the way through chapters 1 and 2 three weeks ago. We talked about the background, and the background was that Paul had made a relatively short visit to Thessalonica. He didn't stay there for over a year like he did in, in Corinth or in Ephesus, and he didn't have time to lay a really deep foundation and appoint pastors and so forth. It was a quick stop, but it was a profitable stop, and that he made some immediate and strong connections such that down the road a piece, when he's writing this letter, he uh, really, really was concerned. Because he, be, he saw the response of the Thessalonians when he was there, but he'd had no word, hey, how are they doing? That was a short time to be there. We could only invest so much in them. And there's persecution. All the churches are suffering persecution. I really want to know how they are doing. And communication being what it was back then, you couldn't just call them up. You couldn't email them. You had to wait for word. And what Paul wanted to do was visit. And uh, he kept, uh, there were other things to do, things that prevented him from getting there. Uh, but he was actually, to be honest, he was anxious or nearly anxious, almost worried. So finally he sends Timothy back to visit them, to encourage them, 
and to spy on them. Actually, to bring a report back to Paul telling him how they're doing. And guess what? The report is a great one. They are bearing up under persecution. And not only that, Paul has already begun to experience something that is extraordinary, which is this. He goes places to preach the gospel for the first time and finds out that the Thessalonians have already been there preaching the gospel. In some cases, he finds out he doesn't have to say anything because they've, they've done such a thorough job. Uh, or people have visited Thessalonica maybe and been so thoroughly converted that when they go back, they carry the gospel that they learned there. Because the Thessalonians are being actively faithful to the gospel message that they had received from God via Paul. So this is a great report. And he wrapped up with this. This is where we wound up three weeks ago. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, uh, sorry, 2.19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. This is the great well done, which was the title of that message. Uh, Well done. If you missed that, go back and get it because it talks about how Yes, in that day when we all do stand in the physical presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which we should all be eagerly looking forward to, he says he's coming and his reward is in his hand. We believe there are going to be tangible and measurable rewards, but Paul's love for the Thessalonians is so great that he says, this is my reward. You're going to be there. This is what, is what I truly, truly cherish is that when I get to heaven, you're going to be there too. And this is the attitude we need to have. The most precious thing we should long to see in heaven is other people. And we should be taking steps to ensure that other people get there. Right? Okay. Now, beginning in chapter 3, Paul continues to write about his concern for them and his motive for sending Timothy. Uh, We'll begin in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we were, we are appointed to this. In fact, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come, uh, come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have a good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also, go, also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are, were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. This is quite a statement. Uh, he expressed there again, here, uh, this, I was eaten up. I couldn't stand it anymore. I had to know how you were standing the strain of persecution. Paul was an old hand. He was a veteran. And he, and he says in this short passage we just read, we warned you when we were there. In addition to all the great news of the gospel, we did tell you it was going to come with affliction. I longed to know how you were bearing up under it. And so here's this great report from Timothy. And what does he say there in verse 8? For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. 
It's like his whole worldview has changed. He's gone from being concerned, hand-wringing, barely enduring it, to ah, take a breath, and it's like a whole new day, whole new life. Now we live. It's a little bit of hyperbole, but this is what he means. Now we can go on with life. I can focus on what we're doing now because I'm so joyful. I'm so relieved at the message about your faith that Timothy brought back. Uh, Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Not that he's accusing them of anything here, just says, I still want to see you, and when I'm there, if I can do anything, if there's any particular teaching you want me to bring, if there's any gift you lack, I want to bring it. I want to be, I still want to be used by God in your life, but so far, so good. You guys are doing great. A little more encouragement beginning in verse 11. Uh, Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, he mentions the return here. Again, there's this encouragement. Yes, we still want to see you. Carry on. You're doing great. But be established. Holiness is something you need to pursue in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. There's a mention of the return here, but as you'll see next week when we get into uh, chapter 5, the return of Jesus Christ is a major theme of this letter. It's what makes First Thessalonians probably If it's famous for anything, it's famous on its discourse on the return of Jesus Christ. We're just not going to get there today. Sorry. In fact, maybe I'll set that aside and we'll address chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians when we get to Revelation. (laughs) Nancy Stewart's been cracking the whip on me forever, trying to get me to Revelation. And then every time I get to something the last days, I just want to shove it off there. Ah, we'll deal with that last part of Daniel when we get to Revelation. We'll deal with that passage in Ezekiel when we get to Revelation. And I keep hoping Jesus comes back before I have to explain when he's coming back. Anyway, but he's saying this. This isn't just a matter of this is how we got to live for now. It's God. We have to live in light of the fact that he is coming. We will see here next, I mean today, why this was such a huge deal. Because it has to do with where Paul goes next in chapter 4. Let's go ahead and read that first eight verses of chapter 4. Finally then, brethren... We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That, one should take, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, 
This is not necessarily a rebuke, but it is significant that there is such a long passage about this one thing, sexual immorality. Greek and Roman society, uh, to say the least, had a pretty lax attitude about sex. Uh, And in fact, one of the most stabilizing influences that Christianity exerted on Western culture was the biblical concept of the nuclear family. One man married to one woman raising their children. Uh, Secular historians acknowledge that this was an enormous stabilizing influence on Western culture. And we have in other letters, you've noticed uh, where Paul gets to the part, you know, it's like, I, I give thanks God, I thank God always making mention of you in my prayers, we love you, we miss you, and then he'll move into the correction portion of the letter. And what we get are, are, are like uh, lists or portions of lists. These are the behaviors that shouldn't be named among you, right? Uh, malice and wrath and idolatry and, and sexual immorality and and he'll, he'll go through these things, as we just read in Colossians. You know, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. But they shouldn't be named among you. Uh, here, he almost exclusively addresses sexual sin. And again, this isn't necessarily, he's not necessarily, we can't necessarily read that this must be something they were doing. But he is addressing it because it's the big danger in that culture. Because it was so widely accepted, the Greeks didn't have any problem with it. The Gentiles didn't have any problem with it. He needed needed them to understand that God does. You know, the Bible um, condemns different categories of sexual sin specifically. But here it is treated... uh, a little more generally, although fornication and adultery are clearly the focus, the word of God clearly and explicitly forbids incest, bestiality, homosexuality, and believe it or not, polygamy. People say, well, God changed his mind about polygamy. No, he never did. You go back in the early days before there was ever a king, and God told them through the prophet, do not multiply to yourselves gold and silver. Do not multiply to yourselves horses. Do not multiply to yourselves wives. And so what we read is this sad history of kings who went ahead and did it anyway, but we never see God endorsing it. It is more explicitly forbidden in the New Testament. So, uh, but more common and just as sinful are fornication and adultery. Adultery is more universally condemned in our society. And adultery, of course, is a case where one or both of the individuals involved in a sexual relationship are married, but not to each other. You are committing adultery if you are married and have sex with somebody who is not your spouse. You are committing adultery if you are single and you are having sex with somebody else's spouse. So we know what adultery is, right? Fornication is simply sex outside of marriage. It's completely consensual. No spouses are being cheated on because neither participant is married. But this is still sin. We have touched briefly and recently on the topic of homosexuality. It came up in a political comment I made at the end of of that first message. But it's something that the church needs to get the plank out of their their eye about. 
because there's rampant adultery, there's rampant fornication in the church. And what we're focusing on one sexual sin, homosexuality. Okay? We need to make sure that we understand, and we need to make sure that those outside us understand that we understand that it's not okay. And this is what Paul's addressing here. Normal fornication. It shouldn't be normal among Christians. It's sin. So people say, well, what's the difference? Why does the church make such a big deal? And the answer is simply this. For right now, we aren't living in a culture where where people are marching and demanding the normalization of bestiality, of incest, of, of homosexual pedophilia, or anything else. That's why it's an issue now, because that's the, the battle line's being drawn against us. It's not the church going out there on the attack. That answers that question. Meanwhile, that's not what Paul's talking about. This is, this is extraordinary. Think about it, because he spent these first three chapters just telling them, you guys are great. I miss you so much. I long to be in your presence again, but I knew it was going to be a while before I could get there. I couldn't stand not knowing how it was going. I sent my closest associate, my most trusted associate, and he comes back and tells me, you guys are doing great. You're preaching the gospel. You haven't caved in under pressure. Let me just remind you of the commands of Jesus Christ. That you walk in holiness and you avoid sexual immorality. And it's the one thing that he spends all these verses on. So again, there's a possibility that it was actually a problem. But there's a certainty that they were surrounded uh, by a culture that did not see eye to eye with them on it. And Paul's saying it's important that you uh, distinguish yourself. That there is a distinct difference between you and the Gentile world who believes there's nothing wrong with it because God says there is. Right? Now, you know, the, the reason I think that might, uh, when I said he doesn't, uh, we, we can't read into this, that this was an issue. You know, in, in, uh, when he wrote to the Corinthians, we knew it was an issue. It wasn't just a general avoid this thing. He comes back and says, I've got this report that there is among you somebody who's doing something that even the worst Gentile wouldn't do. And he names what it is. We don't see this here. Uh, But again, it is so prevalent that Paul considers it necessary to remind them that this isn't just a suggestion to make your life better, uh, that this is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ, never mind what society happens to think about it. Okay? Now, Uh, And the other thing is, as we see here in the context, that this is an outworking of our love for one another. You know, in, uh, where is it, verse uh, uh, 6, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter. That's not not a loving act to have sex with another man's wife or another man's husband. That's not what love looks like. And they have clearly... Uh, they're doing good. In fact, what we'll read next here, verse, uh, verse 9, but concerning, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Their love walk is solid. And for him to say this on the heels of what he just said, again, I, I feel better. It looks to me more like you guys are doing good, but don't forget. Even though society around you is embracing this particular, embracing this particular behavior, don't you. Don't go there doesn't necessarily mean they've gone there yet. This ought to follow as a matter of your love walk. Now, this is, this is where it gets kind of fun. In verse 10, And indeed, 
you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may, and that you may lack nothing. This passage here is probably the closest it comes to the Bible, in the Bible to saying, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And that part about make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. I got to tell you a story about that. One of my favorite instructors at Rama, Mark Redman, he wasn't everybody's favorite instructor because he wasn't, uh, we used to call uh, Keith Moore, Mr. Holy Spirit and Patsy Caminetti, uh, Mrs. Holy Spirit. Not that they were married to each other, but they were the ones who were, that would get into the more fun, charismatic, Holy Ghost stuff. And uh, people like Angela Keaton and Mark Redman would, it was meat and potatoes here, or the vegetables, maybe. This is just straight teaching, straight from the Bible. And part of it had to do with what they were teaching. He taught New Testament survey. And he just had a really uh, practical look at everything. He didn't come from a charismatic background. And he would tell stories about things he heard standing in line to register for Rama that almost caused him to leave. Uh, before he even was a Ramah student. But anyway, he said one of the things that bothered him in one particular class, he sat behind a guy who was very vocal and loud and frequent with his amens. This is during class, not during church. So the preacher or the instructor would be up there and sharing something, and this guy would say, amen. And Redmond's like, yeah, I'm just trying to take notes. I'm trying to listen. This guy, he's a distraction. And I'm like, buddy, we're all here because we agree. We're all training to teach the same Bible. We don't need an amen every 30 seconds. He's not saying this to the guy. He's saying this in his mind. He's just letting this, just letting this uh, irritation build up. So, so finally, one day, the instructor's reading this passage. And when the instructor said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, Mark yelled right in that guy's ear, amen. <laughs> and then the next line was, and mind your own business. And the guy turned around and said, Amen. What, what is being uh, addressed here, uh, if you look at it, look at it in context, is don't be busybodies. You've got your hands full with your own life. Now, there's a balance here because we do need to be accountable to one another. You've heard me preach it before. Uh, people say, well, uh, what I do is none of my business. It's none of your business. My sin is none of your business. And that's true in the sense that I'm not going to stand up here and expose your sin if you come and confess it to me. The details of that are nobody's business. But it, it is our business insofar as you need to understand that if we are one body, your sin does affect us. My sin affects you. We are, we are in this thing together. So it's not like we, he's not saying ignore one another's sins. He's saying in your zeal, to, love, to walk in love, and to please God. It's not your primary mission to go out and correct every single person's behavior. That's not leading a quiet life. That's being a busybody. And it's interesting, again, in context of this letter, what was probably driving them toward this disagreeable behavior was their conviction that Jesus was coming back. 
So you get the picture of the Thessalonians going up to one another and to people surrounding. You need to stop doing that. Jesus is coming back. Is that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? The whole, uh, you, don't want to, you don't want to go to movies on Sunday because if Jesus comes back and you're in the theater, you miss the rapture. You, miss, you, you go to hell. People used to believe that, right? Did you, anybody grow up in a house believing that? I mean, I didn't. But there, that, the movies were a big thing. There, there were, you go back and, and look at things that were just unthinkable for Christians 100 years ago. The circus. Christians don't go to the circus. Christians don't go to fights. They don't watch boxing. These things were unholy, and everybody knew it. Now it's like, what the heck? Two people want to beat the snot out of each other as long as they're okay with it. Uh, if that's how they earn a living, and I like to watch it, I don't have a problem with it. If I want to go to the circus and watch elephants and trapeze artists, I don't see a thing wrong with it. But, but this is the kind of idea that I think Paul is talking about. They were so... They're, they're, uh, they had a lot of zeal, and it wasn't tempered with a lot of wisdom. And so they were making a lot of noise, making a lot of racket, digging into each other's business. And Paul's saying, no, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. And the mind your own business was a little more literal than that. He's talking about your business, your work. You pay attention to your job and do it well. This is another balancing act because... You know where I stand on personal evangelism. You've heard me preach, if, you've, if you're here with any regular, regularity at all, I've told you again and again, it is your job to fulfill the Great Commission. My job as a, as a pastor is to equip you to do that. But it's the, it's the job of the lay people to go out and share the gospel. Yes, you share it with your lives. A, a great starting point, a great way to get your foot in the door, a great way to establish a relationship is to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And mind your own business. Work with your hands, as he's going to say next. But you can't stop there. You do have to speak it. Once the relationship is developed, once it's established, once you have their ear, you have to say something about Jesus. They need to know you're a believer. Amen? Okay. But mind your business. Don't, uh, don't defraud your boss by preaching the gospel on the clock at the expense of getting your job done. All right? Do the work. Take care of your family. Take care of your finances. Lead lead a quiet life. It doesn't mean keep your mouth shut and don't preach the gospel. What the, the picture he's drawing here is a life of stability. Instead of people, and I've known and still know, dozens of them who I mean man one time you see them they're up on top of the world and all they can talk about is Jesus and the next thing you know everything's going bad and as soon as things start going bad they start whining and now in this day and age they don't just whine to people they whine to the world on social media and sometimes they do it in a very non-Christian fashion and I'm not talking about cussing I'm just talking about the fact that uh, it's not a very uh, it doesn't represent Christ well when we when we post things for the world to see that are full of doubt unbelief and fear Right? Where's the faith? So, uh, we just need to watch our confession, not just as it comes out of our mouth, but as it comes out of our fingertips. And see, this is another thing where I tend to be a busybody. You know, as I see things on Facebook that bother me, and I might, if you press me on it and say, well, is that sinful? Well, no. Then why does it bother you? Because I think it sends people the wrong message. I don't make it my business to go and confront them. That's being a busybody. All right? If it's not sinful, if it's not directed at me, like, uh, here's where it boils down to. Let me get, this is not a story I was going to tell. 
and I got to keep it vague, even though I promise there's nobody in here. But we had a, uh, a family. Uh, well, how do I tell this and keep it vague? I guess it's not a big deal because it's, it's not a story about sin anyway. Let's just say some people left a church that I was involved in. And, uh, and I'll be honest, I think I may have shared this before. I know I've shared it in a funeral. My mom's parents used to have a little plaque hanging inside the door that said something like, uh, all of our guests bring us pleasure, some by coming and some by leaving. And uh, there are some times, I think, when somebody leaves the church, it's tragic, you hate to see them go, you hate it for their sake, you hate it for the church's sake. And sometimes when somebody leaves, you realize just what a mess they were, what, what a atmosphere they were bringing in. You didn't realize it until they were gone. You know what I'm talking about? Not that we ever say, yay, so-and-so's gone. Yay, the whole family's gone. But in this case, uh, this, this uh, couple left, and I was urged by a guy who loved the church. I mean, he was for us. He was for the whole church, not just me. He just like, man, I believe in this. And he was like, you need to call them. You need to have a cup of coffee with them. You need to bring them back and find them back. And I was like, nope. <laughs> no, I don't. Not, not that I don't care and not that I never would, but sometimes, here's what it is. It was like, if they come back because I twisted their arm or begged them, and then three months down the road, four months down the road, they get offended and have to leave again. They're just going to resent me. But if God brings them back and they come back of their own free will, nobody gets hurt. And a lot of times it's simply this. In our zeal, like I believe is reflected in the, the zeal at Thessalonica, we want to handle everything. Our passion, we want to fix everything. And and here's that balance again. We can't be lazy, but we should many times be able to take a step back and trust God to deal with people. Trust God to deal with people. It's, it's like when you lead somebody to the Lord. First, and first thing in your mind might be, well, I really need to tell them that when they become a Christian, they're going to have to stop doing this. If you're leading somebody to the Lord, what you need to let them know is that they are forgiven, they are loved by God, that Jesus Christ has already paid the price for everything they've done wrong, that, and that they are accepted into his family, and then what? You trust the Holy Spirit to deal with those other issues. I have seen that happen hundreds of times. Sometimes it comes in the course of teaching like this. Sometimes it just happens in the course of somebody who goes to do something that, they, that used to be normal and say, I found out I couldn't do that anymore. Trust God to do it. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. And to work with your own hands, back in verse 11, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are on the outside that you may lack, and that you may lack nothing. Here's the other side of that, which is, uh, and this might, have, uh, this might touch on retirement. It's great if you have managed your finances and done well enough financially that you never have to work another day in your life. If you don't have to walk out that door past the age of 45 or 50 because you know you will never personally need to earn another dime, that's a blessing. Work anyway. If you are able to continue to earn money, earn it. Earn it. Well, until what age? Until you are unable why? So that you can be a bigger and bigger blessing to other people. 
I don't know if that's not exciting to you or if it sounds too hard for you. Churches, by and large, are supported by people who are supporting their family, who are paying bills, who are still struggling to make ends meet, but they are still honoring God with their tithes. What a blessing to be past that stage where you need, where you're not living paycheck to paycheck, when you've got savings. And you can t- if you can continue then to generate income, you've already admitted, I don't need another dime, I'm set for life, then fine. Continue to generate income and give it all to the church. Give it all to missionaries. Give it all to missions. Be a blessing to people who are struggling. There is nothing biblical about stopping when you've got enough. When do I rest? You can, number one, number one, you rest in heaven. Or as the prophet Weird Al Yankovic said, I'll be mellow when I'm dead. Uh, But just when I'm saying continue to earn money, I'm not saying kill yourself, knock yourself out. I'm saying if you've got the ability and the opportunity to continue to earn, then do it. Do it to be a blessing to other people. And what does he say there? And that you may lack nothing. I really want to dive into this next part, but I really kind of need to save it for chapter 5 because it's all part of one, uh, one subject. When we start talking about the rapture and or the return of Jesus Christ, you don't want to miss next week because uh, we are going to be talking about do we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture? Do we believe uh, that we're here through the tribulation? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have to conjecture a little bit. I'm going to tell you where I land on these things. I'm going to try to do it respectfully to both of those views. Because what Paul starts off talking about, remember when the Thessalonians, even, even to the point of being busybodies, were sharing the gospel their concern was not, when they preached the gospel, they didn't preach it like you and I would or like people have down through the centuries. Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? That's not what they preached. They preached, Jesus is coming back, get ready. This is an exciting thing. Do you know how motivated you would be if you were absolutely convinced? If you were convinced that the probability that Jesus were coming back in the next six months was much greater than it being beyond that, do you think you'd be a little more active in preaching the gospel? You know, you might be saying, I still pray for cousin so-and-so. I pray for my neighbor. And I pray, Lord God, that over the weeks and months and years, you soften their heart. And then suddenly you're convinced he's coming back sometime in the next six months. I better go knock on a door. I better pick up a phone call. I better explicitly lay this gospel out to them. This is what they're doing. They weren't thinking about death. They were thinking about the return of Jesus. But as the days and weeks and months and years rolled by, what happened? People start dying. And so they asked Paul, uh, here we are telling people and living for this moment when Jesus comes back because we want to be ready and we want to be rewarded. We want this meeting, this face-to-face meeting, meeting to be a good one. We want to benefit from that. What benefit is the gospel for people who've already died before Jesus comes back. Not talking about people who died before they heard the gospel. This is where Paul, when he starts to talk about this, that's the question he's answering. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Then he starts talking about the second coming. This is where we're going next week. Meanwhile, today, we didn't have the 
maybe the glorious uh, exposition of the second coming. It was some very practical stuff to thrust. The main thrust of the message is in the middle of your faithfulness and bearing up under persecution, do not forget the call to holiness and purity. This is what the command of Jesus is, that this is part of you being a light in a dark world. You're surrounded by unholy people doing impure things, and it doesn't matter what kind of pressure society puts on you. It doesn't matter how much they laugh at your prudishness. You do not commit sexual sin. And then next, lead a quiet life, mind your business, and work. This isn't the whole of Christianity You can't forget that. He's saying this to a society that is obsessed with preaching the gospel. I'm talking about the Christian society, the subset of Thessalonian society. They've got no issues when it comes to that. They were starting to perhaps err on the other side of it. They were so passionate about preaching the gospel that they're ignoring their jobs and ignoring their responsibilities and becoming busybodies. Paul says, I don't want you to dial back your passion for Christ and the gospel. I do want you to start living in the real world while you do it. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.